grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Growing up, my parents instilled in me a strong sense of morality. I'm guessing that your parents probably did too. That, that word morality refers to distinguishing between right and wrong. So I was taught things like this. I was taught that lying is wrong. Stealing something, taking what's not yours is wrong. Trying to throw one of my sisters off the trampoline, that was wrong. <laughs> then there were the things that were right. Helping do my chores around the house was right. Being kind to others was right. Listening to my mom and dad was right. Helping my sister back on the trampoline was right. Then there were other things that were a little more particular to the southern culture. We got some of this in the Midwest, but those of you in the South will know what I'm talking about. I was taught that always saying ma'am and sir was right. Spitting in front of a lady was wrong. <laughs> Running in church and sliding down the banister in the church foyer, that turned out to be wrong. <laughs> And, you know, I did pretty good with all that. Like, I, I was a very moral kid. I liked to follow the rules. I did not like to get in trouble. And still to this day, my parents will tell my four sisters that I was the most well-behaved kid they had. And they just love that. I was good and moral. At least I thought I was. And we as a culture recognize that morality is a good thing. Good is good. Bad is bad. We want our children to be good. We want to live in a good society. We want people to obey laws and respect of the people, right? And this desire often comes from our religious views because here's the thing. We know that God is good, so surely he wants us to be good too. And so it stands to reason in our minds that if we do our best in this life to be good, then when we die, a good God will let us into a good heaven with all the other good people so we can be good together. Barna, which is a research company, did a survey of American adults in 2020, and they found that 48% of people in America today believe that idea to be true. About half of all Americans believe that heaven is a place where good people go when they die. And this isn't just the general population either. The same survey found that to be true of 52% of people who identify as Christians. They too believe that if they do enough good in their lives, they will earn a spot in heaven. In 2005, a group of sociologists coined this term to describe this, this kind of religious belief in our nation. They, they made up a, a term for it. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, big words, but it's this kind of religion that a lot of people believe in America today. It has five main beliefs they identified. Number one, they believe a, good, a God exists who created the world and watches over us. Number two, they believe God wants us to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in your life unless you need him to fix a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Do you guys see those beliefs in our culture today? Man, I know I see that in my generation. It's very common. And here's the thing. I've even been tempted myself towards that way of thinking because I grew up with strong morals and because I still live with this sense of morality. So it's easy for me to believe that my morality, that my being good is what's most important to God and to my life and to my eternity. 
But here's the reality. There's a big problem with morality. A problem that flies right in the face of what many people believe today. And we find this problem laid out in Romans chapter 2. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, you know we're walking through the book of Romans verse by verse in a series called Unashamed. In chapter 1, we saw Paul began this letter, as he often did, with an introduction and a prayer. And we made clear that the purpose, the theme, the whole central idea of this letter is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves. And Paul wrote to the church in Rome his clearest and most thorough treatment of the gospel message that he had devoted his life to. But as we established last week, before Paul could explain why the gospel is good news, he needed to make clear the bad news. He had to explain why it is that we need to be saved by Jesus in the first place. So in these first few chapters, he lays out the big problem with all of us. We're sinners who've rejected God, and as a result, we deserve his judgment. This morning, we'll see that Paul continues this argument in chapter 2. So look with me now at Romans 2, verses 1 through 16. And if you're able, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? We always have Bibles available under the seats in front of you, but if you're not, you can always follow along on the screen. But Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Look, I know that that is a lot of words, so we're going to take this piece by piece. But first, do you remember how chapter 1 ended? Chapter 1 ended with Paul listing out all the bad things that bad people do. And so naturally, 
After hearing that list, some of Paul's original audience, and even some of us today, will think, well, whew, good thing I'm not that bad. I mean, that's how the first century Jew would have responded. They would have thought, man, we, I know the Ten Commandments. I obey them pretty well most of the time. So Paul here, he must be talking about someone else. And we're tempted today to respond in the same way, to think, I'm a good person. I have morals. I'm not like those horrible people we see in the world today. I'm just not that bad. But you see, Paul anticipated this reaction. So that's why he now turns his sights to the moral person, to the good person. And he gives us three problems with our morality. Here's the first. Number one, our morality is hypocritical. If there's one thing no one wants to be called, it's a hypocrite. But this is exactly what Paul calls the person who thinks they're good and moral. Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Notice that word, therefore. Remember, we got to ask, what's it there for? Well, he's transitioning from that list of sins at the end of chapter 1. And he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Who's this O man? He's talking to. Well, this is where it's important for us to remember Paul's writing style. Paul is presenting an argument, and he's using a hypothetical person to kind of argue with, to make his case against. So he's not talking to someone in particular, but rather he's speaking, as he says, to every one of you who judges. These were the moral people, the good people, who like to think of themselves as good people. And he says they were judging others, but here's the hypocritical part. They were practicing the very same things they judged. This is textbook hypocrisy. You judge other people and look down on them, but you don't live up to your own standard. You do the very things you stand against. And Paul says because of this, you condemn yourself. Look at the rest of this section, verses 2 through 5. He says, we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says to the moral person, he says, you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Just because he's being kind and patient to you right now, do you think you're going to get away with this? No, your heart is hard, and you're storing up for yourself God's wrath on judgment day. This is strong language. Because remember, Paul is speaking to the person who considers himself to be good, to be better than everyone else. And here's what he says. Essentially, he says, God knows the real you. And that's the version of you he's going to judge. Look, we may be able to fool our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our church, but we cannot fool God. God sees and knows everything. He knows our deepest secrets, our darkest thoughts, every attitude, every intention. And when we stand before God, we will not be judged based on our Instagram or Facebook self. We will not be judged based on our work self or our best self. We will not be judged based on the characters we like to portray in different situations. We'll be judged based on who we really are. And this idea would be startling to those who read Paul's letter first. It should be startling to us as well. 
because it brings us to the first big problem with morality. Our morality tends to be hypocritical. We are not nearly as moral and good as we would like others to think. The truth is we're all hypocrites in one way or another, and I'm including myself in that statement. You know, people sometimes say, oh, I don't go to church because the church is just full of hypocrites. And I say to them, yeah, you know, you're right. So is the grocery store and the hair salon and your workplace and your neighborhood. But see, that's why I go to church, because I got a lot of problems, and I, I'm not ashamed to say I need Jesus. That's why we're here. I mean, I stand up here on stage every week, and I look so high and holy with my nice shoes on, and I go throughout my week, and I struggle with sin. Honestly, I'm so thankful the Holy Spirit's there to convict me of my hypocrisy. Sometimes he does that by reminding me when I get mad at someone else for something that I do myself. Now, look, I know none of you ever struggle with this, right? But sometimes I get mad when I'm driving. Like, sometimes when someone is riding my tail and they're in a really big hurry, I get mad and I think, what is wrong with this guy? I'm going the speed limit here. He needs to back off. Then the next day, I'm running late somewhere, and the car in front of me is going slow. And I say, oh, what's wrong with this guy? Some of us got places to be. He needs to speed up or get over. I know you guys, you don't ever think like that, but I do believe Christians excuse a lot of hypocrisy. We condemn the person who sleeps around, and yet we watch it glorified on TV. We point out that homosexuals won't inherit the kingdom of God, and yet we miss in the same verse where it says greedy people and slanderers also won't inherit the kingdom of God. We condemn murderers, yet we hate people who think and vote and live differently than us. We condemn those addicted to drugs, and yet we refuse to help the poor and suffering around us. We sing songs and read verses on Sunday, and yet we gossip at work on Monday. And I won't even bring up politics and the level of hypocrisy we demonstrate when we get mad at the other side for one thing and then excuse our side for doing the same. My point is this. Our morality is hypocritical. We are not as good as we think we are. We all have hidden struggles and sins. We all have parts of our lives that if we were to put up on the big screen today, we would be ashamed. So Paul says to all of us, he says, you really think you're good enough for God? You really think you're going to stand before him one day and he's going to let you into heaven because of your strong morals? All you're doing is storing up God's wrath and one day it's going to be unleashed on you and your morality will be exposed for what it is. That's the first problem with morality. It's hypocritical. Here's the second. Our morality is insufficient. Look with me again at verses 6 through 8. He says, he'll, he'll render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Uh, Paul reminds us that we will be judged by our works. That's something the New Testament teaches. And, and people sometimes get a little concerned by that because they say, well, I thought we were saved by faith, not by works. Well, that's true. We're going to see that made abundantly clear in Romans chapter 4. We are saved by faith alone, but here's the deal. Faith is never alone. Faith should produce a lifestyle of good works that reflect Jesus. So for the Christian, 
Our lifestyle should be evidence of our salvation. We won't be saved because we're good. We'll be saved because of Jesus and him making us good. So what Paul's doing here is he's reminding us that if we try to get into heaven based on our own works, it won't work out so well. But That's the idea that many people believe, as I mentioned in that survey earlier. A lot of people think they're going to stand before God when they die, and he's going to have this big scale. On one side, he'll weigh all the good things that you did. And on the other side, he'll weigh all the bad things you did. And depending on which side weighs more, that will determine your eternal destiny. And most people then conclude, well, I haven't killed anybody, and I'm, I'm not in jail, and you know, I, I'm a pretty nice person. I've done a lot of good things in my life. Surely I will make it into heaven. But Paul's whole point in this passage is that if you and I get measured by our own works alone, by our own sense of morality, we ain't going to make it. He's already established we're in that second group. We're the ones who are self-seeking, who are unrighteous. And therefore, for us, what we deserve and what there will be is wrath and fury. He continues that same idea in verses 9 through 11. He just adds a little phrase he used earlier in the letter. He says the Jew first and also the Greek. Why does he say that? Well, this tells us that one of the main groups Paul is addressing in this section is Jewish people. The Jews were the moral people of the day. They were the ones who believed that they were superior to everyone else because they lived better than everyone else. But Paul makes it clear to them. Just as the gospel came to you first because of your religious heritage, judgment is also coming to you first. Even though they were Israelites who had the law and they went to synagogue and they were related to Jesus, they were going to be judged on the same basis as the Gentiles. They were not getting some special get-out-of-hell-free card. They were not getting special treatment. They, too, would be judged based on their sin and hypocrisy. Paul says in verse 11, do you see that? It says, for God shows no partiality. That word partiality means favoritism. In other words, when we stand before God in judgment, he's not going to play favorites. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you did or what you didn't do. There is one standard of judgment, and here's the key. None of us will meet that standard on our own morality or goodness. That's what Romans 3.23 is all about. One of the first verses I ever memorized as a kid. It says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. This is the second big problem with our morality. It's insufficient. It's not enough. If you try and measure your life against a holy and perfect God, you will not make it. If you try and weigh your life on a scale, the scale is going to break because even the good things you and I do are often tainted with sinful motives. As one evangelist I heard growing up used to say, he'd say, good just ain't good enough. No one is good enough for heaven. Because at the end of the day, no one is really good. And this is why it's sometimes harder for moral people, for good people to be saved. It's much easier to understand and accept God's grace when you know that you've totally blown it and you desperately need it. I struggle with this, being saved as a good kid. When I heard that my sins deserved hell and that Jesus had to die to pay for them, I thought, really? I'm seven years old. 
I mean, I hit my sister a few times, but I haven't done anything that bad, right? It didn't take me long, though, to realize that I was much more sinful at the age of seven than I knew. Those of you with kids know that. And I have sinned plenty since I was seven to make my situation abundantly clear. But there were times growing up, and to be honest, there are times still today where I want to trust in my own goodness. I may start to think subconsciously that God loves me and will save me because look at all this good stuff I've done. I mean, I'm a preacher. Come on. The Bible calls that self-righteousness. It's the idea that I'm good and accepted before God because of my own ability and effort. I work hard and do my best, so I deserve God's love. Friends, that's false. Jesus reserved his harshest words for these kinds of people. They were called the Pharisees. And let me tell you, in the church today, we still got a lot of Pharisees. It's likely that we all have a little Pharisee in us. We're Americans. We work hard. It's the American dream. We, we take pride in ourselves and our accomplishment. Look what I've done. I've worked for everything I've got. We got strong morals and good values and we're honest and dependable and fair, right? Listen, don't, don't get me wrong. Morality is not a bad thing. Being good is good. We want to live in a good and just society. We want to teach our children to be good to those around them. That's not the problem. The problem is when we start to think our morality is good enough to save us. When we become blinded by our own self-righteousness and deceived and we forget that deep down we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Our morality is insufficient. That's second. Here's the third and last problem with Morality, number three, our morality brings judgment. Look at verse 12. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This section, Paul, he starts to talk about the law. and We're going to see that word law a lot in Romans. What, what does that mean? What is the law? Typically, when Paul speaks of the law, he is speaking of that set of commandments and rules that God gave the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. These were the guidelines that told them how they should live as God's people. So Paul here is describing two groups of people. There are those who sinned without the law. Those are the Gentiles. They didn't have the law of Moses. They were outside the nation of Israel. And then there are those who sinned under the law. Those are the Jews. And notice, both groups are described as sinners. This is important because at this point, the Jewish people, as we said, they were getting a little puffed up. They thought because they had the law, because they knew it, that they were good with God. They thought they were better off than everyone else. Those crazy, terrible Gentiles out there, <laughs> they live that way because they don't know the rules like we do. Paul's about to set them straight again. Look at these last verses, verses 14 through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness in their conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul says, hey, even though the Gentiles... They don't have the law like you Jews do. They still know it. Why? Because it's been written on their hearts. This is important. It says that all of us, no matter where we come from, 
no matter our religious background, no matter how moral or immoral we may be, all of us know right from wrong. We do. It's part of being made in the image of God. It's written on our hearts. We have a conscience. And yet, we all choose to do wrong. We choose to sin against God, and one day we're going to stand before Him, and we're going to be judged. See, here's Paul's big point right here. On judgment day, before the throne of a holy God, we will all stand on level ground. Jew or Gentile, goody two-shoes or no good rotten scoundrel, moral or immoral, none of us have an advantage. None of us have a better standing before God than anyone else. Yet many people, including many people who think of themselves as Christians, will attempt to stand on their morality on that day. They will try to stand on the fact that they lived a decent and honest life. They worked hard and provided for their family. And they raised their kids the right way. And they took them to church. And they gave money away to those in need. They supported their community. They were law-abiding citizens. And they're going to expect to hear from God, from God to say, look, you did it. You did it. You made it. You were one of the good ones. Come on into heaven. Jesus tells us what those people will actually hear in Matthew 7, verses 22 through 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Do you notice that? They said, did we not do this? Verse 23, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look, morality is not enough to save you. It cannot make you right before a holy God. And thinking you're good enough, thinking you've done something on your own, will not earn his approval. It will earn his judgment. Listen to this. The sad reality is that hell is filled with people who thought they were good and moral. And heaven is filled with people who know they aren't. Heaven is not a place for good people. Heaven is a place for saved people. It's a place for people who stopped trusting in themselves and started trusting in Jesus. You see, Jesus did what we never could. Jesus lived the moral life we try so hard to do. He did it. Where our morality is hypocritical, his was authentic and real. Where ours is insufficient, his was enough. Where ours brings judgment, his brings life. Because even though he lived a perfectly moral life, he chose to go to the cross for sinners like me and die in our place. He took all our immorality and sin, and he gave us his morality and his perfect record. He received death, and he gave us life. That means one day when I stand before God in judgment, I won't have to justify myself. I won't have to wonder, man, I really hope I was good enough to make it. I won't have to try and, and list out all my good deeds and think about the times I donated money and this and that. I won't have to try and tip the scale in my favor and try to beg God, please, God, I, I did this, I did this. All I'll be able to do on that day, the only thing I'll be able to say is I trust in Jesus. That's it. And he will say, welcome, my son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the key to salvation. It's Jesus. 
It's not your goodness, but his. Not your record, but his. Not your morality, but his. He's done everything you need to be saved if you just believe. There's a problem with our morality, but praise God, Jesus is the solution. Will you trust him today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.